the last church. Chapter 3, verse 14. To the church of Laodicea. Laodicea is modern Eski Hisar. It lays about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia and 90 miles east of Ephesus. It was a wealthy town that specialized in banking. Okay, this is Wall Street. It's the banking industry that decides to collapse the housing market on poor people just so they can make more money. Right? It's power, it's wealth, it's money. The production of black woolen cloth and health care. We all know how wealthy that industry is at the expense of sick people. It was the wealthiest city in Fergia, uh, Fergia, uh, I can never say that name, Fergia. And after a serious earthquake, the city had been rebuilt out of its own wealth with no assistance from Rome. They were so stinking filthy rich that when one of the largest, most expensive cities in the Roman Empire collapsed in an earthquake, they took no government handouts and rebuilt their power back out of their own banking accounts. Extremely wealthy. And yet there's nothing good that God says about this city. I'm telling you, you're seeing a pattern here. This pattern is not just these seven churches. It's all throughout the entire Bible of what wealth can do to us. Once again, it doesn't mean that you're bad if you're wealthy or that you can't have a godly life if you're wealthy. It just means you need to be divesting yourself of your wealth. And I don't mean sell everything and live in a cardboard box Unlike the book Radical, it's like, then I got to feel guilty for even owning a cardboard box and sell it too. The idea is divest yourself as use your money to build the kingdom of God. Use your money to build the kingdom of God. Remember Jesus said, be like the world. They use their money to gain friends, but they do it to make themselves feel better. Use your money to win and influence people for the kingdom of God. Right? You build a swimming pool in your backyard and you're like, dang it, everybody wants to be my friend now. How miserable that is that. Yeah, guess what? You don't have to go door-to-door witnessing anymore. They're coming to your door. Okay, build a backyard swimming pool. Invite the neighborhood. Serve them. Buy food for them. Have cookouts and grill-outs, right? And then when they come in, they're going to be like, wow, you're so open and generous. And then you can tell them about your God. That's what Jesus meant. He didn't mean sell everything because you feel guilty and beat yourself. He says, Use your, divest yourself of it. Not sell everything, liquidate, but divest it. Just keep it flowing to other people. And God will use it to build the kingdom of God. But the problem is that's hard for us. We're corrupt. It takes the Holy Spirit. It takes intentionality. I would even recommend writing some kind of covenant down on a paper that intentionally makes you think through it. And it also takes accountability friends that get in your face and say, you're hoarding a little too much. It takes a lot of work and intentionality. But what God is saying is that's not happening here. Chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel in the church of Laodicea, write the following. This is a solemn pronouncement of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation. I know your deeds. They are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spew you or vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and have acquired great wealth and I need nothing but do not realize that you are wretched pitiful poor blind naked take my advice buy gold from me refined by fire so that you become you can become rich buy from me white clothing so that you can be clothed and your shameful nakedness will not be exposed and buy I salve 
to put on your eyes so that you can see. All those I love, I rebuke and discipline. So the earnest and repent. To, so be earnest and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door and knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne, just as I too conquered. And I sat down with my father on the throne. The one who has ears had better hear the spirit says to the churches. So this isn't harsh in the sense of you've tolerated all this idolatry and false teachings like it was with Thyatira and the other churches. But it is, I want to vomit you. That's not pleasant either. This hot and cold, you're neither hot nor cold. I want to spew you out of your mouth. For a long time, and probably still people are, taught that this meant that God would rather you be hot, on fire, and passionate for him, or cold, completely turned off and against him. But just be kind of, eh, makes him want to vomit. Nowhere is that ever in the Bible. Nowhere does God say, I'd rather you hate me and be against me than kind of blah, apathetic. In fact, against me is associated with apathy and apostasy all the time. You're either with them or you're not. And if you're not, God doesn't like it. Whether you're eh or apathetic or anti him or whatever, none of that's good. It all brings the judgment of God. It has nothing to do with he'd rather you be against him or for him, but being kind of in the middle and indecisive doesn't mean any of that in any kind of a way. This has to be read like somebody from the ancient world who lives in the Roman Empire. Laodicea, in the ancient world, Rome channeled water from one place to the other through aqueducts. You've seen this. The aqueducts could be as high as giant arches. They would carry spring water or something down these kind of channels. Um, Think if you've ever gone to like Olentangy Caves or something like that or, or some other place where they have like, you, your kids can pan for gold, right? And there's these, these little channels of water that are going down through things. Or the curb, think of the curb on a rainy day with a curb on both sides kind of. It's a channel. Or your gutter. There you go. There's a good idea. Everybody knows a gutter. So a gutter. And so it's this channel and there was giant aqueducts. And they would be really, really, really tall at the beginning. And then they would travel for miles and miles and miles. And they get lower and lower and lower. Because we all know, like, all you need is the bubble on your level just to be a quarter inch off. And that's just enough for drainage. And so they would just gradually go down until eventually they were at the last city. So they would have these, at this first city or the second city, they have these channels that would break off the major aqueduct and come down to you. And it would keep going. And then Laodicea was the end of the line the last stop of all the aqueducts. They had a Colossae, the nearby town, was known for their refreshing cold spring water. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was just warm. And if you ever drink warm water, when you're really hot and exhausted from working really hard, either building something or working in the garden or something like that, it's just, ugh, like, or get in the car. At the end of a hot day, you're like, ooh, I left a water bottle in here. And you drink, and you're like, oh, right? So they had cold springs. Hierapolis had the hot water springs. Now, the hot water springs are sulfur water. Okay, sulfur water smells like rotten eggs. And if you 
hopefully you never have, but a little known fact, um, if you drink sulfur water, it will clear you out both ends, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and so well, there's hot water springs in Israel everywhere, and when we go there, we like sit in these hot water springs, but everybody's just like, like you make sure you're really above the water before you start talking because you're just like, I'm in a foreign country in a hotel trying to experience the world. I am not getting anywhere close to drinking this accidentally, right? No head going under the water. Okay, I'm even afraid like your skin is the m largest, most absorbent organ in your entire body. And you're like, okay, how long should I sit in this thing, right? So they're, they're hot water springs and they're incredibly soothing and medicinal when they're hot. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was just lukewarm. And it just smells like rotten eggs. And the idea is nobody drinks the hot water spring by accident because you can smell it. And it doesn't, it only takes one person to drink before you realize the right side is the hot spring, the left side is the cool spring, right? They, they know they're not accidentally drinking it, but when you go up to this, it's kind of like, oh, there's nothing medicinal here, and it's just the rank smell. And if you did drink it, sometimes they would make you drink it because it's like castor oil, right? It's going to force you to throw up if you have some kind of, right? When you throw up, it's your body's natural way of getting it all out. And so sometimes you induce vomiting, and so it's... But, you drink it. But at the same time, in a hot Roman Empire in Asia Minor, and you go to the spring water, and that's all you have because that's the water, and it still just kind of makes it, uh. That's the image. You don't have any of the medicinal benefits of the hot water anymore because it's all cold and lukewarm. And you don't have any of the refreshing coolness of the spring water anymore because it's all lukewarm. And it just makes you, you want to spew. You drink the cold water, it's not refreshing. Maybe in the winter, the cold water doesn't bother you because it can get cold and that kind of stuff. But in the summer, and, the, you, and we all, if you've ever been a kid and been sick, your parents might have made you drink the sulfur water, a little bit of it. It just makes you want to spew. The idea is that both of these things are incredibly beneficial for life and health. And yet, by the time they come to Laodicea, they have no benefit whatsoever. And that's what you are, Laodicea, as a church. Doesn't matter which one you take from, you make it one spew. And I don't like it. I would rather you be medicinally beneficial, hot water, or passionately refreshing to somebody and your joy, but instead you're just blah. You just are there doing things. And it makes me want to vomit. Now the only other time we really see this imagery is Jonah and the whale. Jonah was a scumbag prophet, even though we like to talk about him in science school class for little kids. <laughs> he was an absolute scumbag, borderline false prophet. And when God said, go to Nineveh, he said, forget that, and went the opposite way. And not only did he get on the boat, when the people were like, hey, there's a storm that's about ready to kill us all and the lot fell on you. You're the problem. You know what Jonah said? Kill me. Sacrifice me. And even the corrupt, you know, you don't get any worse than a sailor. Even the corrupt, evil sailors are like, I don't want to murder you. He's willing to put his blood on their hands as a human sacrifice to appease Yahweh like he's some pagan god. And he doesn't care what this is going to do to their soul. He's supposed to be preaching the gospel. And even they repent. And he never told them to repent. Then he gets to Nineveh, and he never tells them to repent. He just says, God's going to kill you all. 
doesn't say anything about what God, anything about repentance, forgiveness, or nothing. And then when God says, why are you so angry? He says, I knew they would repent because you're a compassionate God, and I wanted them all to die. That is so anti-gospel. That is evil. And so what did God do to him? He took him literally into the, the depths. The depths is hell. It's the underworld. And so Jonah says, I was taken into the belly of a fish, the Leviathan, the symbol of evil, into the depths of the sea, symbol of chaos, evil, into the dark sea, darkness, symbols of evil and chaos. And Jonah says, I went into the pit, the grave. And God says, you want to go down to Joppa and down to Tarsus? I'll take you down. I'll take you all the way down into the depths of the grave. And then when he does not repent, he never repents. He just says, okay, God, I'll obey. It's like when you tell your kids to take out the trash. I'm like, wah! And they scream at you, and they get mad, and they stomp their feet. You're like, you better do it. And they're like, okay. <laughs> That's what Jonah literally did. No repentance. And God says, fine, you're going to obey me. I know you will because you said you would, but I'm not going to make this fun. I'm going to spew you out stomach acids, projectile, chunks of fish. You're coming out with everything. That's the imagery. That's the only time you see the imagery. This is what God does with people like that. He spews you out. And this is what he's saying Laodicea. I'm gonna, I want to spew you out. You, you're not doing anything in the kingdom of God, yet you bear my name. Why are you like this? Because I am rich. I don't need anything. I don't even need Jesus. Right? Wealth makes it hard to know how much you need Christ. Lance Armstrong, most of you guys know him, won the Tour de France, right? Multiple times. I forget how many times. At least two or three times Seven. in a row. What? Seven. There you go, right? That's a lot. That's more than I thought. I thought it was like somewhere around four. Got cancer, Right? Recovered from cancer, went back out and won it again. A reporter asked him one day, after he won the race, like got off the bikes, had the helmet off, asked him, what role did God play? He was all cheery and everything, talking about his win, da -da 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 -da, patting on the back. And the reporter asked him, what role did God play in your recovering from cancer? And he got dead serious. He says, God did nothing with it. I cured myself. I worked my butt off. I won this race. Because when you're wealthy and really accomplished, it's hard to know your need for God and to see what he's doing. This is what God is saying. You stand there in your city with all your wealth and all your power, and you think, I don't need anything. Look, we rebuilt this city. I worked this, right? What do I need to praise God for? I'm the one that got this job. I'm the one that climbed the corporate ladder. I'm the one that worked my butt off. I'm the one that did all this. Yeah, who gave you the brain to be able to do that? Who blessed you from getting sick all the time so that you could do that? That you have some terminal illness and you can't work and you're losing it all. Who, who gave you all of that? Who gave you the drive that you even have? Not everybody has that work ethic and drive. Why did you get in other people didn't? You have no idea how many things in the company even happened that God even lined it up for you. That's why they are where they are. Their pride, absolute pride. And this is why God wants to vomit them. 
because pride is one of the most detestable things to God. You don't even realize how wretched and pitiful you are. This is the celebrity. This is the CEO who's talking about how miserable and lonely they are, but then they immediately go off and say this. Like Rihanna talks about how miserable. If you don't know her, she's a really famous pop singer, R&B, pop, rap, kind of a little bit of everything. She's very attractive. She's very incredible vocals, very wealthy, very powerful. Talks about how she's miserable. She doesn't know who really is her friend or not because she's got money. Are they her friends because of what she can do? She spends most of her hotel time traveling everywhere, no roots, no family, alone in the hotels, just finds random guys to bring him back to the hotel and sleeps with them just so she won't be alone. And then when the, the reporter asks her, them, why are you doing this life? And she says, because I like the fame. I like being worshipped on the stage. They, she, she knows she's sad, but she doesn't really realize how rich and pitiful she is because she's being distracted by all the bright lights and the fans. And most of the fans are little girls. Like, how intoxicating could that actually be? Um, I don't know. I've never been up there, so um, <laughs> don't really want to go up there either. But this is the idea. This is where, this is where wealth can be absolutely blinding. You don't know. How, and look how many descriptors he uses of them. This is like an English teacher's dream right? <laughs> You're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Those are probably all the words that they use of other people as an insult because they look down at them from their nose. And I know they're doing that. Only people, people, anybody who says, I did all this. I need nothing. They, they look at other people that way. Take my advice by gold. For me, refined by fire, so you can become rich. This goes back to First Peter. For Peter says that God is using trials to refine your character like gold. I think I mentioned this earlier in this study, but the idea is that you have impurities and metals and all kinds of stuff in gold. You heat it up really hot, it melts down. Okay, all these impurities rise right to the top. It's called slag. It's called dross. It depends on who you're talking to. You take a blade, you scrape it all off, and that's worthless because it's just. And then the gold cures down, and it's, it's purified. And, and Peter says that God uses trials to heat up your life, so to speak, to refine your character, because this is the point of going through trials and fasting. Um, you can fast for many different reasons, but at the core, the reason you fast is when you strip yourself of everything, you, you have no more food. We all know how you're, you are when you're lonely, tired, hungry, and all that kind of stuff. And then you're going through trials, everything's falling apart in your life, and you find out who you really are. And then you know what you do with that? You can either be like, that's right, that's all their fault. Oh God, why are you doing this? Or you can say, I surrender this to you, Christ. You get on your knees, you repent of who you really are, and the Holy Spirit comes and scrapes the dross out and begins to transform you by the renewing of your mind as you take every thought captive. And then, the next, and then when the trials are over with, you're more purified. So he brings the next one to purify you even more. And your character becomes greater and greater. And God says, buy that gold. That gold can only come through suffering. Your wealth will not refine your character. You can have great character and be wealthy, but none of your wealth and power will make your character better. I want you to come to me, and I want you struggle we don't like people who don't struggle we can't relate to them so that you may truly become rich in your character 
and your salvation. From me, white clothing, that you'll be clothed with your shameful nakedness. Right now, you're naked. You will not be exposed. So come and buy from me a salve. Now, remember, they were all businessmen, and they were also the medical industry, healthcare. And so come to me to buy eye salve. Okay, it's the eyelids absorb things faster than most places on your body. This is why when your kids are born, your, your little kid doesn't produce vitamin K or potassium when it's first born, which are essential for clotting blood. They don't want to risk that in the hospital. Lawsuits. There's probably other reasons too, but I'm sorry, I'm cynical. They, they put this salve of vitamin K and potassium or some other things. Probably a doctor can be way more accurate than I can and all the ingredients. And the eyelids absorb it very fast so that if something happens in the hospital and so they can circumcise your boy before the eighth day. That's what he's talking about. Buy salve for your eyes. Not only because it absorbs more, because then it will also not make you spiritually blind. You'll be awake. You'll be able to see God for what it really is. So you can see, all those I love, I rebuke. We know this, right? A good parent rebukes their children. A bad parent never does and raises little Nellie Olsons from Little House on the Prairie. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you should watch that show. It is very good. And you should watch it with your children or grandchildren because it will open the door up for so many great conversations. You want to know how to have difficult conversations with your children? Watch that show. It will open the door. So be earnest and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. So I love you. I'm rebuking you because I love you. Because better you be rebuked and changed than ignored and go to hell. So be earnest and repent. Listen, I am standing at the door knocking. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him and he with me. And people argue, is he talking about opening the door for salvation or the door for just like knowing him deeper and better? And the answer is yes. Right? The people in this church are dead. They're lukewarm. There's probably people who are truly saved. But notice that unlike all the churches, he never made distinctions. You tolerate the false teaching. But over here, I know there are still some who are with me. There are no distinctions. The distinction between those who are saved and those who are not and just living a good ethical life, but probably really are not because they're Laodicea, you can't tell the difference. And so some may truly be saved and they're just dead, dead, dead. Just a little bit left. They're mostly dead. And then there's some that are truly not saved and they're just going through the motions because welcome to Wording Christian High School. There are lots of people who are truly good people who are saved and following and walking with God. And they are on fire. And they're like, I wish I was like that when I was your age. And there are others who are just there because mom and dad sent them there and said, fix my child. It's like, I can't fix them. I have fewer hours with them than you do. Not that God can't do something, a miracle with me, but without God doing a miracle, I'm not, I'm not going to fix them in the so many hours that I have. And there's some who are just like, yeah, I'm kind of a Christian and a good kind of person, but I just want to send my kids here. Yeah, you're Christians, but I'm mostly looking for a good ethical education, a Plato ethics, Right? And I can't find that anywhere else except for a Christian school. So, yeah, we're Christians, right? And I had the money to do it. And I will let you know every single time that I had the money to make this happen. This is the idea here. You can't, 
They're all mixed together. And that's true of most churches, right? They're all mixed together. You, you have people that are just there because they feel like they have to be. They're hoping something will fix them. They're there because they love God, or they're there because somebody told them they should be here, whatever, whatever, whatever. The idea is that God is offering table intimate fellowship. This isn't about salvation. He says, the door knocking, anyone who opens the voice of the door, I will come into his home and share a meal with him. Ignore the door imagery. The most important imagery here is the meal. And all throughout the ancient world, meals were covenants. It means that we belong together. We have fellowship together. We know each other. If, you, if In the ancient world, if you ate a meal with somebody, you're saying, we are in a covenant now. And I will protect you and bless you like you're my own family. This is why when the man of God went to Jeroboam in chapter 13 and 14 of 1 Kings to condemn Jeroboam for his sins, God said, do not go back the way you came and eat no meals with anyone. Because if he ate a meal with them, it would communicate that he had made a covenant with these corrupt evil king and his corrupt false prophets. It would communicate that now God has made a covenant with me as well. If you go over to the Middle East today, and maybe even some other cultures, they will invite you in. They'll be like, come on in, come on in. And they'll, they'll be so hospitable to you. And they'll invite you in and they'll give you tea. And there is a certain way of drinking the tea with them, an order and that kind of stuff. And they'll provide you food. And they will stand there and watch you eat the entire time. And you'll feel awkward and weird. And you're like, wait a minute, this isn't right. And you'll feel guilty. Don't. Because what they're saying is, I care about you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to be hospital because that's a generous thing to do. But if I sit down and eat a meal with you, I'm making a covenant with you. And I don't know who you are. You're a stranger that I'm going to love and take care of. But I don't know you. I'm not going to make a trusting, binding covenant with you. And so God picks this up and he comes to Abraham in chapter 18. And Abraham invites him in and God sits down and eats with Abraham. He uses imagery all throughout the Bible. And then Jesus tells the parable of the great banquet of the king. Inviting everybody in. Everybody's like, oh, I can't come, I can't come. But then he goes out to the poor and the sick and they all come in. And how many times does he tell a a parable of a banquet? And yes, salvation is the beginning, but you can be saved and not have intimate relationship with God. But the ultimate goal of this sentence is not the door opening like in the previous one. The ultimate goal is having a meal with them. And so ultimately Jesus, the night before his cross, sits down with his disciples at a table and breaks the bread and pours out the wine and has a banquet, a covenant, and says, this is my covenant. And what Jesus is saying here is, it doesn't matter whether you're saved or not. What matters is, I want you to come to me, into my home, sit down with me, and have intimate table fellowship with me. And Jesus said in the Last Supper, I will not participate. You are to do this frequently in remembrance of me because you're a community of believers. Fellowship, covenant, intimate, vulnerability, trust, accountability. But Jesus says, I will not drink of this cup again until I come back. Meaning that I'm not going to be able to have true, physical, intimate, covenant, banquet, meal, fellowship with you until I physically come back again. 
My Holy Spirit will come and indwell you. But when I come back a second time, I'm going to sit down at the table physically with you, and we're going to have a meal together. But it's not going to be 12 disciples. It's going to be people from all tribes and all languages and all ethnicities from around the world. That's what he's inviting Elijah to see. You throw these giant banquets, you wealthy people, right? We've seen this. You buy these big homes, and you bring out all these caterers and all these decorations, and you bring in the best foods and the best music and even live music. And you bring it on, and all the purposes, look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. When you get that wealthy, that's what you're doing. And Jesus says, that's not the banquet that you really want to be a part of. I am the king. And I'm not inviting you so you can think how amazing I am. I don't need your approval and your accolades to feel good. I'm inviting you because I want to actually eat with you. I want to eat with you. I didn't come to the Pharisees' home so you could brag about how you are the great rabbi. I came because I wanted to be with you, Simon. And I wanted to eat with you and know you. I didn't go to Zacchaeus or Levi's house so they could brag as the great tax collector, but they had the rabbi come. I came because I wanted to know them, and I wanted to be with them. That's the banquet I'm offering you. Not a banquet of accolades. Not a banquet of rubbing shoulders with everybody in the know so you can elevate yourself and gain more power. But a banquet where we have intimate table fellowship. I will grant the one who conquers permission to sit with me on my throne, just as I too conquered, and sat down with my father. And the same way he said to those who were suffering, right, Philadelphia, I, I am the morning star. I am the conqueror. And I will lift you up as conquerors, and you will sit next to me in all of your suffering. No city comes to the stinking, filthy rich as well and says, I and the true king and the true conqueror. And I'm offering the same thing to you. The, the, the person that is oppressed and poor and has nothing, absolutely nothing, they have suffered, they, they feel insignificant, the world looks insignificant, I'm going to lift them up and sit them on the throne next to me. And you who think you're all that and have all this money and all this power, if you repent and obey, then I will lift you up to the exact same place with them. And you will have table fellowship with me, you will be conquerors, you will have white robes, and you'll sit on the throne with me, and you'll rule the world. But you're not going to rule for look at me, you're going to rule to make the world look like me. That's the goal. And you're going to rule in such a way that it's going to make it available for more and more people to come and sit on the throne with you. You're going to want to share it. It's not king of the hill who can get to the top and hold it the longest. And eventually you go down to the grave and all the kings say, yes, you become just like us, dead in the grave eaten by worms. It's the, can I get as many people onto the cosmic mountain of God as possible? That's what it means to rule and subdue. Not to put yourself on the hill all by yourself, but to get as many people on the hill with Christ and you as much as possible. And this is what he's offering them. Let him who has a year... Here, and the Spirit says to the churches, if this is what you relate to, if this is what you relate to, then I would call you to pray for some kind of a trial. And I know that's like, oh my gosh, you're like, that's a scary prayer. But we'll go simple. We'll just start with baby steps. 
right? Just pray that God would do something that you would know fellowship with him. And then he'll bring the suffering. You don't have to actually say the words, right? I won't make you say the words. This is what I tell my students when we're going through marriage and family and we're talking about what produces healthy character and that kind of stuff and how to have. And I tell them, you're about a couple years away from graduating and being completely on your own. And some of you have never been responsible for anything. You've never had to pay for anything on your own. You have never had to even clean up your own mess or apologize for your own mistakes because your parents have done that for you. You've never had to reap the consequences. If at the end of this class you realize that I'm making good points, then go home and tell your parents, stop it. <laughs> it will hurt to say that. But in the side you say, I know I'm going out of the world. And if my parents' money doesn't last forever, or their reach isn't far enough, or I get in trouble or under somebody who's more powerful with a larger reach than my parents, then the world is going to crush me. And it's going to hurt. Or you can start learning to have the scaffolding taken off now where people still love and care about you. Because that's what raising children is, right? Scaffolding. You have every, like, they know how to, they know how to cry, poop, and breathe. You have to teach them how to eat. You have to teach them to control their poop. You have to teach them everything, right? So all the scaffolding's on. And a good parent puts all the scaffolding on them because of their fragile little chubby flush things, right? I don't really, like when other people come to me and they're like, hey, you went home with my kid? I'm like, why? Right? But when my kid was born, it was like God flipped a switch on me and I had this incredible, unexplainable, unfathomable love for them that I wanted to be with them. And it was totally God because I, because even after my kids were born, I still didn't grow a love for other people's kids. So they had to get to a certain age first. I used to substitute in kindergarten and I said, no more. <laughs> it's one thing to hang out with like two or three of your own kids. It's another thing to have 30 snotty-nosed kids that are absolutely needy all the time. I don't mean snotty personality. I mean literally draining, <laughs> right? I just, there's no more. And then they're like, I can't get my pants undone to go to the bathroom. Like, oh, no, 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 right? That's too needy. I know what the world is like in lawsuits and false accusations. So there's no more. The idea is that as they get older, you take a little bit more scaffolding away. And the idea is that hopefully most, if not all, the scaffolding comes off before they leave the house so they can crash and fall and, and burn, so to speak, when they're in the community of people who love them and will pick them back up because the world won't do that. And so this, this, this is what you need to pray for. This is what I tell my students. Pray, go to your parents. You're two, one year away from graduation. Ask them to remove all the scaffolding. You might have to do it slowly in the next couple of years because it should have been done a long time ago. But ask them to invite you into their life and teach them how to manage checking, how to be responsible, how to do this and that and that. Ask them to not step in and scream at the principal because things didn't go their way. Ask them to back off for your sake so that you can start learning this. And if this is you and what you're struggling for, that's your prayer to God. Refine me, God. And know that just like I as a parent who love my kids and do not want them to get hurt when I remove the scaffolding, I'm always there with them, walking with them, never allowing them to truly get hurt 
and and by, by that I mean destroyed, annihilated. How much more will the Father of Heaven remove this scaffolding and allow you to go through trials to refine your character, but always be there? And His hands are there, only letting enough that He knows will refine you, but never pulling off so much because you've walked away from Him and refused to repent. And now He's like, you're on your own. Because eventually, Enron collapses, right? Eventually, Venezuela goes down. Eventually, government shutdown happens. Do you want it to happen that way? Or do you want it to happen in the hands of a loving God? And so this is you. This is your prayer. My hope is, as we, yes, this is not the really cool part of Revelation. We talked about that. And yes, this took a while. But this is essential. There's a reason why God spent three chapters with this description of who he is that leads into these letters. And all of us can relate to at least one of these in some kind of form, maybe not in the, somewhere on the spectrum. And what he's done is he's giving you, he's, he's, he's revealed to you what your struggle is. Hopefully the spirit convicted or encouraged. He reveals to you what you need to hear. And now the, the, the response is to go out and do it. If you really, truly love God, then pray that prayer. Read those books. Get that accountability partner into your life. Whatever it is, and go talk to more people because there's probably more things you can do than what I even just mentioned. And this is what I tell my students all the time in marriage and family. I will give you all the tools. Well, not all of them. I'll give you a lot of tools of how to become emotionally and mentally healthy from all of the trauma and the lies that we buy into as humans. I will give you all the tools that you need to have a healthy relationship. But you are going to have to be intentional and do the work, just like I have to. I know this stuff, and I still struggle. And I don't know all of it, but I know enough that I should be doing better, right? But it's that sinful, selfish nature. God can give you the words and the encouragement and the rebuke and the instructions and the tools and the practical steps. But you have to say, here I am. Here I am. And you have to be willing to roll up your sleeves and work hard and do it. And if that's a struggle, then pray for it. Because remember, God says, I have come to make your joy complete and give you life to the fullest. And if anybody asks for wisdom, I am always faithful to give it to you. He wants to answer these prayers. These are the very few things that you can actually name it and claim it. Because God first promised it to you, and you can claim what he promised. You can't claim what you want that is outside the will of God and the promises of God. And so these churches are essential because this is the life of the world. All of us come from one of these areas, or we know people who come from one of these areas. The rebuke and the encouragement is the foundation for everything that he says and then the judgment of I am coming soon with the scepter or with close table fellowship and the white robes of victory, depending on where you are, is the absolute foundation for everything else that we're going through Revelation. If you don't get the heart of Christ with these churches and you don't get his rebuke for their sin and their arrogance or their disobedience and you don't get his encouragement 
and, 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 and the reward for those who suffer and are faithful despite the crushingness of the world, then all the lights and dazzle and the judgments and the plagues and the ends of the world and the witnesses and the dragons, as cool as it might be in a Hollywood movie sense, the message that God is communicating will not make sense to you. It will just be some flashy, really cool fantasy book that you know is true. But there's a message there. The message is not, look how, let's all figure out the times and the dates of everything. Oh, look at this really awesome thing that he's going to do. Look at this horrible, scary thing he's going to do. The message is, repent. Because the judgment is to bring you back to Christ. Those who are suffering wrongfully for your faith in God, I'm going to bring victory for you one day. My mercy is to draw you to God. My justice is to draw you to God. Let him who has ears hear. Let him who eyes see. That's the ultimate message of Revelation. To encourage them to persevere in their faithfulness to this God-man so that they can have close table fellowship with him and not go through the hell of the judgments, but only experience the trials of Christ to refine their character so that they can enter the kingdom of God through the blood of Jesus Christ and sit on the throne with Christ and at the table with him, not for their own glory and their own pride, but for the sake of having community. Because that's what we really desire. The money that you seek is just to have community. The power that you seek, deep down inside, we want to feel safe, we want to be accepted, and we want to have a purpose. Those are good, noble image of God desires. And all that power that you seek after and all that money and all that fame or all that whatever, 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 whatever is ultimately just trying to get you that. But Christ has a better way of getting it. Does that make sense? This prayer is for you. This prayer is for me.